0: I kind of see myself as the type of problem like you fail once big and then you correct it and you never have to deal with that failure again. But life isn't like that and people aren't like that. It's always sort of iterative.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Christine Carter. Christine is a sociologist, columnist and speaker. She is the author of the books, Raising Happiness, 10 Simple Steps for More Joyful Kids and Happier Parents, as well as The Sweet Spot, How to Achieve More by Doing Less. She's also a senior fellow at the Greater Good Science Center, where she explores the science of happiness and researches how to thrive in our stress-filled, fast-paced modern world. Christine has appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show, The Dr. Oz Show, The Today Show, The Rachel Ray Show, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and many, many others. She's also been quoted or featured in The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and other media outlets. You can subscribe to her monthly newsletter, that's right, you'll get an email only once a month, at christinecarter.com. In the episode, Christine and I discuss why she began to fantasize about being hospitalized. What drove her to cancel a keynote speaking engagement at the last minute? Why the opposite of busyness is not laziness? How the first industrial revolution created our notions of workplace productivity, which we still mistakenly believe today. How you can schedule rest into your day to increase your productivity. How a multitasking brain consumes energy and ways to retrain ourselves to stick to one thing at a time the importance of experiencing stillness and how that can improve brain function, why Christine began leaving her phone in the car when she went grocery shopping, the one personal failure that she continues to experience, and finally, why we should allow our kids to experience boredom and disappointment. Christine also responds to a question from a member of the Inner Circle, which is my membership program. So Inner Circle Member Kathy Chang asked, what are the one or two most consistent attributes of organizations where workers are the happiest, most productive and least likely to leave? Um, If you'd like to learn about famous failures interviews before they happened and submit questions for me to ask the guests, you can learn more about my membership program at ozanvarol.com forward slash membership. You can also sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Called the weekly contrarian it will arrive in your inbox every thursday morning it'll share a new article that i wrote that week along with recommendations for books articles other tools really anything that challenges conventional wisdom and helps you look at the world a little differently and you can sign up for that by going over to weeklycontrarian.com and if you sign up you'll also get my free ebook the contrarian handbook Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Christine Carter, and thank you, as always, for listening. Christine, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: We're going to begin with the modern epidemic of busyness. As you know, we wear busy as a status symbol, and this is certainly true for me, um, and fill and stuff every minute of our lives with activity. Sometimes when I have downtime, I almost feel guilty about it. And not too long ago, you found yourself also exasperated by the business of, of modern life. So walk us through what happened exactly.
0: Well, it's a little ironic, honestly, because my expertise is in positive emotions and happiness on the one hand, and also productivity and elite performance on the other. So I had been studying productivity and well-being for well over a decade when it all kind of came crashing down for me. I actually was highly, highly productive. I kind of thought at the peak of my career or at least doing really well. And I had a young family and felt really good about how much time I was spending with my kids, for example. Like I really kind of thought I had it all except that I was really tired. I was tired all the time because I would basically like work during the day and then come home and spend time with my kids and then go back to work at night when I should have been sleeping. And it just sort of, it built up to the point where I got, I was sick a lot and it wasn't like a major illness. It was more that I just had strep throat. I honestly, like I would get every virus on every airplane I ever went on. (laughs) And so I just like had a lot of colds that turned into strep throat. It was just this sort of ongoing thing. And I didn't slow down at all. I really tried not to slow down At, at one point. I ran a half marathon with 102 fever because my whole family, it was on Mother's Day and my whole family had sort of traveled out to the location of the race to support me and I just didn't want to let anybody down. I saw my physical exhaustion and constant minor illness as a mark of my character, actually. You know, like I I was like, dang, I'm strong. Like I really didn't see it coming, but it did come. I started having hospital fantasies where I was like, you know, my I'd have friends who are like, Oh, I have to have knee surgery. I'm going I have to be out of work for two weeks. I'm gonna, you know, I'm like, oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> like, you, know, like, you don't have to check your email for two weeks. You know like, that's just so awesome. I did like, dude, I woke up one morning on the weekend, my fever was was higher than usual. And I like always had like 99, but I just like had it had just been higher for a little bit longer. And I looked at my husband and I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> I'm just so tired of being sick. And he said, call your doctor. And so I called my doctor and I said, I think I should go to the hospital. And he said, I actually think you should go to the hospital. You're probably just dehydrated, but like we just need this is ridiculous. I just pulled up your chart and you've been on antibiotics almost consistently for 18 months. And that's like too much. Your body has just had it. And so I did have a much more severe infection than I normally had. It wasn't like anything that they were willing to keep me in the hospital. And I was like really lobbying to spend the night. I was so tired, right? And I had a speaking engagement in Atlanta on Monday. And I didn't want to get on the plane. Right. And I just felt like it was going to be devastating. I was a keynote speaker at a huge women's conference. Right. And it was Saturday. Like, how are they going to get somebody else in there? Like I needed to actually be checked into the hospital before I made the call to say I just couldn't do it. For me, that was the big wake up call. It was really quite devastating professionally. For me, because the doctor did say I couldn't go because he was worried about the infection be, um, getting into my blood, and he didn't want me to be on a plane. He was like, "Yeah, you're absolutely too sick. You have to just stay home. I'm not going to keep you in the hospital." <laughs> you know, but because uh, we already gave you IV antibiotics, like there's for you. Right?
1: So um, your hospital fantasy wasn't quite realized since no. you had to go home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it was, but it, you know what? It was devastating for me professionally. The conference organizers understandably we're really pissed, right? Like if you're a professional speaker, you can't let yourself get that sick and run down to where like the weekend before you're like, God, I'm just too run down. Or I, I just, you know, I had a kidney infection, so it all worked out fine. In the end, they found somebody else and everything. But the hardest thing about that whole period in my life was that phone call that I had to make canceling my talk. And for me, that was what it took. I'm like, you know, I have been studying this stuff for for over a decade. Like the the irony was not lost on my doctor. It wasn't, you know, I was at Marin General. I was at this small little community hospital where like everybody knows everybody. And so they're like, this is you, you know (laughs) know what I do for a living. Right. So I just went back to the drawing board, looked at all the research that I had been like, talking about, writing about and coaching people through and, and sort of road tested it all again. Like I completely remodeled my life and I'm super happy to report that (laughs) I really haven't been sick since. I mean, I probably have had a cold or something, but I haven't certainly haven't been on antibiotics. And that was seven years ago.
1: It's interesting. We're often too close to our own problems to be able to do anything about them. Like if somebody else came to me with a list of my own ailments, I would be able to tell them exactly what to do and how to do it. But like when it comes to me and actually taking my own advice, it's really, really difficult. What you mentioned about the the hospital fantasy, which I hadn't heard before, although I recently read an article, which I'll include in in the show notes about this new trend in South Korea I believe where they have these private prisons that you can check yourself into so you pay to be there to get this feeling of freedom you leave everything including your smartphone outside and then you spend like 24 48 hours in this prison <laughs> to oh be able to God. like get some downtime and, and, and escape the, the demands of modern life which is which is sort of like your uh, your hospital fantasy
0: yeah it is because it's just as messed up Right? Like the idea of going to prison. I I actually, now we call that vacation, right? You just take a vacation. But because of the busyness, cultural Stuff that we put behind busyness. Busyness is a sign of importance. It's a sign. I mean, I, I don't think I'm the only one who saw stress and exhaustion as a mark of my character, right? Like this right. is a big thing in our culture. And so, you know, if you're in the hospital, then you have an excuse to not be productive. But on vacation, now it's possible to work all the time. And if busyness is a sign of significance and importance, the opposite of busyness we take to be laziness and insignificance. And actually, I mean, my key takeaway from my whole ordeal is that the opposite of busyness is flow. It's a flow being in a flow state, right? Busyness, it's you're just under constant time pressure. There's not enough time for anything, including sleep. And being in a state of flow, you lose that sense of time.
1: I love that reframing that The opposite of busyness is not laziness, because that's I think what most of us think. Like the word lazy to me brings to mind my friends from some of my friends from college who would like smoke pot all day and and play video games and and not go to class. And the word lazy, which is the opposite of, of busy, brings to that. At least to me that to mind. But I love the idea of thinking of the opposite of busyness as as being in this flow state. Is there anything else that we can do to challenge this modern idea that if we're not constantly busy, we're a total failure?
0: I think just seeing it as the limiting belief that it is, right? It's this limit it's this super limiting belief that we've just swallowed whole hog. And when we start to see that it's actually not true, right? So So just for starters, and I can go back, I can from a sociological perspective tell you like how we got here. But we know from all the research on busyness that there is actually no correlation between your perception of yourself as being busy and having a lot to do and being under a lot of time pressure and your actual productivity, contribution to the world. Like it's, And we all know people who are like claiming to be very very busy and important and they seem to get nothing done, right? Like we know this from the science and we know this from our own experience, right? You know we know on a really deep level that it's not true that busyness is not a sign of productivity and multitasking does not lead to bus- it leads to busyness but not productivity. Like all the sort of assumptions around that, are actually quite false. This is hard to believe in a culture in which the most important people seem to have the most to do, seem to, they don't actually necessarily, but we know though that it's not true. This belief is a holdover from the first industrial revolution. I think scholars are now saying we're in the fourth industrial revolution, but like at the time, a couple of things happened, like factories started opening And the factory model became the way we started to think about productivity because you could measure a person's productivity by the amount of time they spent on the factory floor, right? Like on the assembly line, that became our measure of productivity. It's interesting because about the same time, what coincided with this were the railroads. In order for the the trains to run on time, we needed to have a more precise sense of time. And so all the villages started to align their times so that the people would not be on the train tracks when the train was coming and that so people could get into the cities for their jobs and so all of a sudden human consciousness developed a totally different sense of time that related to productivity you know those two things so we we sort of were built you know for the last couple hundred years with this sense that time can be equated with money or productivity and that with money. And actually, this is, of course, no longer true in terms of the way most of us work, certainly the way you and I work. And so we need to just let that go.
1: So true. Although it is really hard to shake off that conditioning. It's and uh, that And yeah, that time is that the more time you spend the more productive you are. Um, And I'm thinking of my former profession, which is being a lawyer, where like literally, you know, the more time you build, the more money you made. And even to this day, I find it, and I've been now out of practice and and in in academia for nine years, I find it really hard to not think of my life in these like six minute billable increments (laughs) And and not think that the more time I spend, the more productive I am or the more successful I am. Uh, so I'd love to hear you speak about when you had this wake up call and you had to cancel this really important speaking engagements after ending up in the hospital, you said you remodeled your life to to address the problem. What were some of the strategies that that work well for you to combat this, this notion left over from the, as you said, from the first Industrial Revolution, that the amount of time spent correlates with how productive you are?
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing that I want to say is that it was a slow remodeling, right? Like it was kind of one room at a time um, and it was iterative. So it's sort of evolved. I did write a book about this and I know what I, and people are like, oh, so I know exactly what your life is like now. And no, actually part of this is that it continues to evolve. And the first thing that I had to do was Obviously, look at the amount of rest that I was getting. And, you know, for me, because I was so wedded to this notion of like that I was too busy to sleep, (laughs) you know, I'm a recovered perfectionist, a sort of long, all my life been kind of an overachiever. I just really attributed my success to overwork. I worked both smarter and harder. (laughs) And so I had to just sort of dial back the overwork basically, and um, become much, much more, not just more, more efficient, but much more conscious about building rest into my schedule. So the way that I did this was really spending a lot of time with the neuroscience around how our brain consumes energy and how the different attentional networks in our brain tend to um, work. And my biggest takeaway in all of this was that your brain is actually super, super active when – you're just staring into space, when you're not actually focused on something, this is something that I was completely missing in my everyday understanding. I sort of felt like if I were just staring into space or if I were just waiting in line without also checking my phone or whatever, right? Like if I were just doing nothing, then that would be a waste of time. Like there would be nothing happening in my brain and I needed to always be getting something done because I had little kids and I had, you know, the whole thing. That was really wrong. And the more I learned about this, the more convinced I became that the only way to to sort of get through modern, to thrive in this modern world where there is so much to do is to take really, really consistent, very real breaks throughout the day. Because when when you do just stare into space... What happens in your brain is it starts to make connections between things that it didn't previously see. It becomes very active and it makes connections between things that that you didn't consciously see as connected before. And that is the seat of all creativity and all insight. And there's really nothing easier and nothing more powerful than those sort of aha moments that we get. So when you're looking for ways to increase your overall power, while at the same time you increase your ease in life, and you decrease your sense of your stress, for example, and exhaustion, that Taking a break is actually the easiest way to do that. So when you do take more breaks, you tend to be able to focus in a much more complete way. When you are more focused, your brain doesn't interrupt itself as much, right? Because your mind doesn't wander because you've just given it that time that it needs to wander. But when you took a break and just were staring out the window or just waiting in line or just going for a little walk. When you can focus in a really honed way, you just really increase the odds that you drop into that state of flow. And that's where your work gets really easy, both because you have much more cognitive power and just simply by not being interrupted by your own thoughts. And also, it doesn't seem to consume much energy. It's easier on your brain. You don't come out of a flow state feeling exhausted, you come out of a flow state feeling energized.
1: Yeah, as the saying goes, it's the silence in between the notes that makes the music. So how do you build, logistically speaking, that silence into your day? So you said you build rest into your schedule. Actually, two questions related to that. What does rest for you look like? What does a typical break for you look like? And how do you actually build it into your schedule?
0: So I started first really small with just all the little interstitial moments that a generation ago would have amounted to rest from the brain's perspective. So my real interest was in, quote unquote, resting the brain. But really what I was what we what we're doing when we're just staring into space is we're resting our particular attentional network and the brain becomes more active when you look at fmris of people's brains when they're just daydreaming versus when they're focused on a very serious and important problem <laughs> their brain is much more active when you're just daydreaming so rest is a little bit of a misnomer but for all practical purposes resting the focusing network in your brain that meant like if i was going into the grocery store leaving my phone in the car so that I could just have time to wait in line, right? Like, right. And, and just stare into space. Um, if I have meetings on campus or if I'm working on a corporate campus for the day, I try and schedule meetings in different buildings so that I have like a five to 10 minute walk between those things. And I do not turn my phone on, right? So I just walk from one meeting then to the next meeting so that that just sort of gives me that time. I was a big consumer of TED Talks and um, TED radio every time I was walking the dog, right? Twice a day. I'm like <laughs> listening to podcasts and things like that. And so now I leave one listening period of time, either while I'm commuting. Um I let myself do some listening, but everything else, walking the dog, commuting. If I I, mean, I don't commute that much anymore, but, but if I am in the car driving or whatever, it's just silent. Right. So I was using the time that was already there. It didn't, I wasn't actually taking any time away from something that I was doing. Cause, cause frankly, when you, you know, check your Twitter feed while you're in line at the grocery store or while, I mean, I, the, the other day, this is so hilarious. I, I'm so sorry if you ever go to the bathroom with me in a public restroom, but like I like I like to like watch the number of people who walk into the stall while checking their (laughs) phone. Seriously, I'm like, ladies, there's a line, right? Like, don't check. Like, you can pee without checking your (laughs) or like your email. Like, you're not (laughs) that busy.
1: Yep, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Same thing in the same thing in men's restrooms, by the way. I mean the the number of the number of guys who are you know using the urinal and, and looking at their phone at the same time, It's incredible.
0: It's just a habit. So like really, like going to the bathroom used to be a perfectly normal time to just let your mind wander. It's really important in terms of your ability to focus and to do high quality work and to do it efficiently, for your mind to be able to wander, A lot of the day, we don't know exactly how much, but it might be as much as half the time, right? So you want your mind to wander when you're not trying to focus. This is the way to get great work done and to not have it be really taxing. Now, the other really key thing that is sort of counterculture, but really it was sort of like took me down to the studs was multitasking, right? Like I was so proud of what an incredible multitasker I was. Like I swear every mother is like, oh yeah, the men in our lives are terrible at multitasking. We can do 500 things at once, right? Like (laughs) it's the stupidest brag ever because it makes you so tired. Your brain was not designed to multitask. You can do it. I mean, there is no such thing as running multiple apps in the human brain at the same time, right? Like that doesn't work. But you can switch back and forth between a lot of different things, it's just really inefficient and really taxing. The attentional network that would normally be blocking out irrelevant information and helping you prioritize and organize your thoughts and everything gets tied up. By switching back and forth. And that attentional network that does that, manages that switching, is a huge gas guzzler. It literally takes tons of oxygen and tons of glucose in your brain to multitask, which is why, at the end of the day, you feel sort of brain fried, right? Like, if you've been doing this all day. So, for me, that was just, like, a really simple thing that… I was like, oh, yay, single tasking, that seems like no fun, right? (laughs) Like, I've just spent 10 years getting really good at it. And, but what I learned when I looked at the research related to multitasking is that, like, you can be a really, really good multitasker compared to other people, but you're not very good at it compared to yourself if you're single tasking. Right, so those of us who see ourselves as like great multitaskers, super taskers this is the researchers call it? Right, you still like even super taskers who think that they're really good at multitasking, they still underperform versus themselves on every single cognitive measure when they're single-tasking. So it's like, why do we do this to ourselves? Well. Because it makes us feel busy and important. When we have so much to do, we can't just focus on one thing at a time. It's ridiculously ineffective and inefficient.
1: And it feels weird, by the way, when you try to single task after you've been multitasking for so long. I mean, the, the example you gave of uh, walking... And not listening to a podcast. I mean, I've been doing that for so long because it's like, well, I'm going to go on this walk. I might as well do something productive. And then uh, and I recently started not doing that when I'm walking my dog, and and it was really weird at the beginning. I mean, I felt guilty about just like just walking and and enjoying this time and not you know in taking information that could be useful to a blog post or or a book chapter. But, you know, after the first week, I would say things improved and I started having more fun. Like I got this idea from a book I recently read called The Art of Noticing by Rob Walker, where uh, he is like over a hundred ways of like noticing more things in your life that you miss because you're too distracted. Mm. I now like play this game when I walk my dog about, well, I, I let my mind wander, but I also look around and like try to see something and notice something on this, the same route we do every morning that I hadn't noticed before. And then life becomes more interesting.
0: The thing is that we're so geared towards stimulation that The idea of not keeping ourselves super hyper-stimulated all the time feels really scary. And in fact, we do go through a little bit of a withdrawal. Like we know that it takes some time for the sort of dopamine networks to calm back down again and for us to not feel agitation at not doing the thing that was so stimulating before. So then we can redirect ourselves towards still finding stimulation externally, like to noticing things. And there is something that I think is really important about being able to be really present and see what is around us. Like, I think that that is actually a fabulous practice, but it's different than allowing yourself to really turn inward and just daydream right? Just allow your mind to wander. You know, both things are important. It's important to be really present and noticing what's around you and not being distracted from it. And it's also, I think, important to just let yourself be bored, to just experience stillness, no stimulation.
1: Well, that's such great advice I'd love to um switch gears a little bit and talk about failure. <laughs> yeah. Since that's the, the Ta of the podcast, but we covered such interesting territory and and I'm so grateful that you gave uh me and and our listeners really concrete things that they can do right away. That goes a long way i think in 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 breaking this obsession with with business and, and equating our productivity with, with how busy we are. So if you look back on your life, what stands out as one of the most valuable failures you've had and, and what makes it valuable?
0: We've talked about probably the most valuable failure I've had was that
1: Right, the hospitalization. Is the yeah. hospital, yeah,
0: yeah the, the non-hospitalization, <laughs> <laughs> right? And it wouldn't have been as valuable if I had been hospitalized because what was valuable about that was how painful it was for me professionally. That in and of itself, I saw as a form of failure. Like It wasn't my health. That I was worried about. It was my career I was worried about. That was a big wake up call to realize that my priorities were all out of whack. Right. Like in, of all people, I, I felt like I already knew those lessons. I think what has been valuable about that failure as well. I've had a lot of failures, but what was really valuable about that is that it's not the biggest failure I've ever had by any stretch of the imagination. It's the most consistent failure I have, Hmm. I would still say that my like most consistent mistakes that I make are overwork, right? I still tend to take on too much and it's nowhere near as bad as it was before. And I have built in a lot of sort of breaks and speed bumps and all kinds of things. But there is something to being middle-aged or I'm 47 to being at this point in my life And, um, being able to see like, oh, this is really a consistent failure that I have. Like if I'm going to make a mistake, it's become now at this point in my life, really predictable. And for me, it was sort of an interesting thing to be like, wow, like I kind of see myself as the type of problem, like. You fail once big and then you correct it and you never have to deal with that failure again. But life isn't like that and people aren't like that. It's always sort of iterative. I feel like every time I make this mistake again or have a little failure in terms of like taking on too much and getting too tired. Like literally just this last spring before I um recently went on vacation. So it was like the beginning of the summer, I had back to back speaking engagements. And in the last speaking engagement that I was doing, I was going out to it and I just knew I was, I was tired. I was done. I needed to be on vacation and it was one too many. And in the middle of that speaking engagement, a tech guy came running up to me and switched out my microphone because he thought that the battery on my microphone was going out, but it was my voice right? My voice, I just needed to swallow. I was fine. And I wasn't sick, but it was like, here, this, that's the same failure in the same situation, right? Like seven years later, here it is. It's happening again at a much smaller level. So every time this happens, I feel like it's a little bit of an upward spiral. Like I'm in a much better place than I was when I had a major like systemic infection, right? But it's still the same one. And so it it just is It shows up for me in a way that I need to continually work on and bring like real acceptance that this is actually a personal flaw (laughs) that I can accept about myself and not pretend isn't there that I could get rid of it once and for all.
1: Yeah, I love this conception, Christine, of of a consistent failure, because we do tend to focus, as you said, on on the big failures, because the big failures blow up in your face. They're really hard to ignore. But the consistent failures have a tendency to sort of blend into the background noise. They're sort of always there. And they also they almost just become... A part of the norm, the way that you live your life. So it becomes much harder to one notice them. And even if you do notice them because they've been there for so long to actually do anything about them. So, in one sense, they're sort of, you might even call it like a stealth failure because like it's, they're just harder to notice and do something about versus a big failure which blows up and you know, you got to do something about it.
0: Right. And they're easy to disguise. Right. And the thing about human beings at least with me well we know all human beings like consistency and habit and familiarity bring us a, a weird sort of comfort even if it's a destructive habit right like we take great comfort in things that are and behaviors that are very familiar to us and so the weird thing is that that our stealth failures tend to be right inside our comfort zone right i feel more comfortable when I'm really busy, and when I'm overworking, because for most of my adult life, my whole life, I've been that way, right? And so it's in a strange, paradoxical way, uncomfortable for me to do the thing that is actually gonna be more successful for me. And I think that that's true for all of us, that our stealth failures bring us some measure of comfort simply because they're so familiar.
1: You've previously written about why it's important to protect children from what you called a life devoid of of failure. How can parents encourage their children to embrace failure, to become comfortable with it, and also to learn the lessons that, that come from it?
0: I mean, most parents, it's probably innate, and it's not just our generation, that we don't like to see our kids fail because failure can bring so much pain. We, of course, don't want our kids to be in pain, right? We want our kids to thrive and be comfortable. And our society has become very, very comfort oriented. Discomfort um, in any form um, doesn't even have to be full fledged failure or pain is something to be avoided and that we, that we really protect our kids from. And so the first step is not necessarily even to go all the way to failure, but to just go to discomfort, right? Like just allowing our kids to experience and cope with discomfort in all its various forms. Boredom, right? Our kids do not need to be entertained all the time. Disappointment. They do not need to get what they want all the time, right? So like starting with low level stuff like this, I think is, is really important. And then when they do have larger, make larger mistakes or do have failures, it's really important not to try and take those away from them, cover up from them. Like, so maybe they make a really big mistake and they're really embarrassed about it, or it makes them really afraid of what to do next to not say like, Oh, you don't need to be embarrassed. Everybody does that, right? Like let them feel their bad feelings or their hard, difficult feelings that come with the failure that gives them the opportunity to learn that embarrassment isn't necessarily all that bad. It's temporary. These feelings come, and when you feel them, then they go. And that gives them the courage, kids the courage, to know that then they they can handle it if they make a mistake again, right? Or they can do hard things. They can feel hard things. It makes them more willing to embrace challenge, which of then, of course, increases the odds that they will fail, but then they will also gain all this incredible experience that comes from it.
1: We're coming to the end of our time here, but I did want to ask one more question. I have this membership program called The Inner Circle, and uh, I'll let them know ahead of time who I'm going to be interviewing on the podcast, and and they can submit questions. And so I wanted to ask you one of the questions that came in from from Kathy Chang, and she asks, and this relates to your research on happiness, What are the one or two most consistent attributes of organizations where workers are happiest? And by happiest, I mean most productive and least likely to leave.
0: Oh, well, you know, it's so interesting because one of the things I was just looking at some data on this is if you are in an organization in which you feel encouraged by a manager or somebody who is your superior in the hierarchy, right? Like a leader in the organization to take a break that dramatically increases people's happiness with their jobs and the likelihood that they will stay in their jobs. So feeling encouraged by a leader to take a break is one of them. Totally related, this is the same research, was actually taking breaks about every 90 minutes increases your happiness, not just with your own work and and how much you like your work, but how much you like The company that you work for. And that was versus people who take only one break or no breaks at all, which I thought was really interesting because I think that there are a lot of people who eat lunch at their desk while Mm -hmm. checking their email and don't take any breaks at all. The thing that came to mind most quickly was what we've already talked about, that you know, taking breaks does lead to happiness within organizations as well.
1: Totally. And that's such a nice way to wrap up the conversation by bringing us full circle to where we started. Well, Christine, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about you, where can they find you online?
0: Christinecarter.com is where you can sign up for my newsletter or see what I'm writing or what I'm working on.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much again for joining us. Hi everyone, thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results. You can text my first name, which is Ozan. That's spelled OZAN to 345345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O Z A N to 345345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanbarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called the Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.